Thanks for listening to the Frontiers podcast. If you have a moment before we start, please rate and follow this podcast. It makes a huge difference. The more of you that do this, the more people get to listen. And the more people that get to listen, the bigger platform I'm building for academics to share their research. Thanks so much. Hi there. You're listening to Frontiers, the podcast that explores cutting-edge research from the world's best scientists. I'm Ian Hallett, and in each episode, I interview professors, doctors, and research scientists who are leading authorities in technology, economics, business, politics, the environment, and sociology, so we can learn about the scientific breakthroughs that will redefine our world. Today, I have the privilege of speaking with Professor Maro Guillen, Professor and a Vice Dean at the Wharton School, a former Dean of Cambridge Judge Business School, Guggenheim and Fulbright Fellow, and author of 10 books and over 40 academic articles. Our conversation delves into Marrow's research on global market trends, where he methodically identifies and quantifies the most promising opportunities at the intersection of demographic, economic, and technology developments. And now please enjoy my conversation with Professor Marrow Guillen. Let's start right at the top. Your research has proposed that today's biggest trends will collide and reshape the future of everything. Just so we can frame the conversation for everybody, could you explain what trends you believe will have this impact and why you think they will collide and reshape our future? Yeah, so first of all, Ian, thank you so much for inviting me. Uh, There are three types of trends that I discuss um, and uh, pretty much in all of my research, I'm paying attention to them. So it's demographic trends, population trends economic trends and technological trends. And the whole point is that we shouldn't analyze them separately. What we need to do is to essentially think about how they come together, how they interact with one another to produce outcomes that of course involve massive transformations because you're not just looking at one trend and the changes that it uh, generates, but you're looking at the interaction among three types of trends. So that's those are the three categories of trends. Okay, so they're colliding. Just talk me through, because you you say in your book, you talk about lateral thinking and trying to think about things in an integrated way. So can you just bring that to life for us? So I don't mind whether it's, it's a demographic trend or the economic trends and how they're colliding. But could you give us some real life examples of where that's happening, where you see that happening? Well, uh, the collision essentially um, has to do with how these trends are coinciding in time, right? And putting us in a bind in the sense that we have to adjust to so many things at the same time. But you also brought up lateral thinking, which I think is uh, perhaps the most important concept here. So lateral thinking has to do with our ability to look sideways, to not just focus on one thing, but see how other things within our you know vision field are coming together. And uh, I can, I think, best illustrate it with an example, which is uh, my favorite example of this, is... Um, why should we worry about uh, the Chinese decline in fertility in the number of babies? And well, we should be uh, uh, aware of the fact that China is a big saver and uh, that China has become the second biggest um, holder of U.S. treasuries after Japan. And therefore, if um, the population ages there, they're not going to have so much money for saving because they will have to use some of that savings. And therefore, then China will export, so to speak, less capital to the rest of the world And as a result of that, then, uh, there will be fewer buyers in the world for U.S. treasuries at some point as this process of aging in China kicks in. And uh, that will mean that uh, the U.S. will have a little bit more trouble refinancing its debt, rolling over its debt, right, when it comes uh, to maturity. And uh, that, in turn, will produce higher interest rates. So I started with babies, which is a population trend, 
And I ended up with an economic trend having to do with financial markets, which is interest rates. That's lateral thinking. Understood. So when you're thinking about demographic trends to start off with, you're going right to the beginning of are people having babies or not? I'm assuming how long are people living? Do you also consider are people moving from one place to another uh, and the uh, marriage rates and those types of things? So could you just unpack that demographic trend to the kind of the main components that you're talking about? Absolutely. I think there are essentially, when you think about it, there are four main things in demography that we need to keep track of. So the first is how many babies are born. So that's the fertility rate or the birth rate. Uh, although I prefer to use the fertility rate. It's a technicality, but the fertility rate is a better indicator. Um, the second one is life expectancy, which is the opposite of mortality, right? So in other words, is how long those people who are born are expected to live. That's the second one. The third is, well, uh, yes, people may be born in one part of the world, but then move to another like I did. I was born in Spain and then I moved to the United States. So that's migration. So that's also important because, you know, if a migration goes from a country where it has a lot of people to a country where there's fewer people, uh, because there's fewer babies being born, then that rebalances everything. And then the last really important category is health, because we don't only care about how long people live. We also care about what kind of a health status do they have? Are they healthy? Are they unhealthy? Uh, most people, of course, get unhealthy towards the end of their lives. So a big question is, you know, on average, how many years before we die, on average, do we um, uh, live in poor health? So, for example, in the United States, it's about uh, uh, seven years or so. It varies by country. So the last uh, seven years of the average American are in poor health right before they die. So those are the four key demographic characteristics that we need to keep an eye on. And the economic ones, are they the traditional economic trends such as employment levels, GDP per capita, those types of things? Would you mind doing the same for those as well? Well, I, I don't, um, you know, cover the, uh, the, the basic macro uh, figures of macro magnitudes in, in my book, mainly, you know, GDP and uh, um, unemployment uh, or employment, right? Uh, interest rates and so on and so forth. Um, what I do is I focus on specific trends that I think are changing some of those variables, uh, like, for example, the rise of emerging markets. So emerging markets like China, India, Turkey, Argentina, Brazil, becoming more important, not just in terms of how much they produce, but also in terms of how much they consume. So we see the, the, the rise of the middle class in emerging markets. So that's really important. And that's one of the key economic trends that I uh, analyze in, the, in my book and in my research. Um, but beyond that, in terms of economic um, variables, because of course the economy has many attributes. There's so many characteristics that we could study, right? So my main one is that, how that's uh, shifting. But another one that I pay a lot of attention to in the book is inequality. So the distribution of wealth and of income. And I actually start linking that with demography. So one question that I always ask myself is, okay, so how about when you compare men and women, right? Uh, who's accumulating wealth faster? who is uh, seeing uh, wages or incomes grow faster? And the answer is women, by the way. Um, and another uh, similar thing is how about uh, in terms of age? So who owns uh, the real estate in the world? Who owns the wealth in the world? And the answer is mainly people above the age of 50. Um, so in other words, when it comes to the economy, I think about emerging markets as compared to more developed markets. I also think about the poorest parts of the world, like Africa. Uh, but then more importantly, I care about the um, 
the rise of the middle class in emerging markets, I care very much about the, as I just said, uh, the distribution of income and wealth uh, between men and women, and also uh, depending on the age. And where does technology fit into this? Well, technology is the, uh, the big topic today. People oftentimes forget about what technology is, right? I mean, people think, oh, technology is like a new gadget, right? Well, that's a product, okay? And the product may have, you know, different kinds of technologies. So we have essentially two kinds of uh, technologies in the world, right? Uh, since, the be- since the beginning of all time. So we have technologies <coughs> that help us produce things. <coughs> so in other words, a technology from that point of view is the way in which we organize capital and labor, machines and labor, right? And, you know, there are certain ways of organizing labor and machines that are more efficient than others, okay? Uh, so that's one uh, meaning of the word technology. The other meaning of the word technology is technology as in a product or technology as, for example, mobile telecommunications, which, you know, have a tangible part like, you know, the phones and the towers and all those things, and also an intangible part, which is the services around it, right? Or the internet is also a technology, of course. So um, it's really important to consider technology because, as you know, um, countries in the, around the world and also companies, they differ from one another in terms of how efficient they are, how good are they at combining capital and labor. This is really important, right? Uh, but we also see that companies differ from one another, um, especially companies, but also economies, in how much innovation there is in terms of product technologies, right? Um, and so both things are extremely relevant because, as you can imagine, they can uh, affect, uh, well, they, they directly affect the economy, right? So economy that is very um, focused on innovation from a technological point of view in either of the two meanings of the word then it's going to have higher productivity, it's going to grow faster, it's going to become richer, and all of the rest. And then it also has an impact on demography, right? Um, technology has many impacts on, te- on demography. So, for example, um, as you know, from the 1960s, uh, we um, developed like very, very effective contraceptive methods. So that had a huge impact on demography, right? Especially on the birth rate. But we also have developed a technology that has medical applications, many different kinds of medical applications. And therefore, we have managed to increase life expectancy, right? So those are just two examples. There's so many other examples in which we see an interaction between technology and demography, right? So the three things, demography, economic, the economic aspects, and technology, they're all interrelated. They're all part of the same, you know, like a big, uh, you know, um, messy world that we have, okay? Now, I know this question is potentially probably going to be, well, read the book. Uh, But um, are you able to paint a picture for how these three trends do meld together to create the vision? You you talk about vision in 2030 to create how the world or how our experience of the world is going to change as a result of these trends that are that are occurring and the changes that are happening within them? Yeah, that's, that's a great, that's a great question. And so first of all, I published that book in, in 2020. So why did I choose 10 years? Well, because I think five years is not enough. It's not enough perspective, right? And then beyond 10 years, I don't feel very comfortable making projections because, you know, the further you go into the future, the less accurate you are, right? But I think 10 years is doable. So of the three trends, the one that I think in principle, just in principle, theoretically, is the easiest to uh, predict is demography. Okay, so sometimes we get surprised by demography, right? But, you know, if you're asking me today, how many people age 20 
we're going to have in the year 2030, right? Well, I would tell you, Ian, I think I know that number with a reasonable degree of accuracy because I know how many babies were born, you know, 20 years ago. And I have probabilities as to how long they might live and, and all of that, right? So, so there's a way of thinking about demography, right? Now, obviously, within 10 years, you can be relatively accurate. Uh, but, um, you know, if you're asking me to make demographic predictions over 30 years, then I would make a lot of mistakes. And, and frequently, we have been surprised by these sudden demographic swings, right? And by the way, migration is the one that is the, the most difficult to predict, right? Because, you know, sometimes politics interferes and sometimes wars or any uh, some other kind of crisis also interfere, right? And uh, you have uh, um, big changes in, in migration. Uh, then economic trends are really difficult to predict, much more difficult, I think, than demographic trends, even over 10 years, because as you know, hey, the economy could be doing really well today. And in a month, there's a bad piece of news. And then suddenly, you know, people say, oh, actually, you know, this year is not going to be as great as we thought it would be. Um, and then lastly, the one that is really hard to predict is technology, right? You ask the experts, and that these days, for example, um, just to give you a, an example that everybody's talking about, uh, nobody knows how many jobs will be destroyed by AI, right? And if you look around, there are all sorts of estimates, right? From like 80% of all jobs to only 20%. Uh, and then it depends, of course, on the occupation. Some people say that plumbers are never going to lose their jobs, right? Uh, but lawyers may. But again, there's a lot of disagreement about all of those estimates. Okay. And you talked about disruptions. So since you've written the book, we've had a pandemic. There's a conflict between Russia and Ukraine and now a conflict between Israel and Hamas. How do these big events, big significant events, affect the vision that you were painting? Well, I think, uh, you know, we have to uh, think or distinguish between uh, two types of events, I think. There are events that, as you seem to be suggesting, derail pre-existing trends. They place obstacles, right, in the way. Uh, they, uh, if they do not derail the trend, they slow it down significantly, okay? And then there are events, I'll give you examples in a moment, then there are events that accelerate pre-existing trends, okay? And uh, some events may accelerate some trends, but slow down other trends. So let me use, I think, uh, the example that, you know, a lot of us have been thinking about, which is the pandemic, the coronavirus pandemic. So look, in terms of technology adoption, which was already going on before the pandemic, um, uh, COVID-19 greatly accelerated um, the adoption of technology by people and the use of technology, right? And now, well, you know, probably before COVID, you and I today would be in the same room and uh, recording this. But now we have the technology and we, not only that, we have the habit of uh, doing all of these things uh, at a distance, right? Using a digital platform. So the pandemic has accelerated that. The pandemic, intriguingly, it also accelerated population aging, right? Why? Well, it is true that, uh, especially during the early stages, uh, older people tended to, uh, you know, be affected in great numbers by, by COVID-19. But the biggest effect of COVID-19 in most countries in the world, intriguingly not the U.S., was to reduce the number of babies. So in other words, people postponed having babies. They put their plans to have babies on hold. Now, if that happens, the population ages, right? <laughs> because uh, the population ages, if people live longer, 
but the population also ages if you have fewer babies, right? Because then people are getting older and older and uh, there's no, nobody replacing them. Uh, the U.S. was uh, different because if you remember the, the administration went in really strong and said, you know, let's uh, give people a lot of money. Uh, let's, uh, you know, flood the economy with, uh, with money from the government. And then a lot of people um, felt uh, safe as a result of that, economically safe. And so they continued to have whichever number of babies they wanted to have. Okay. So the U.S. was the only exception in the world, really. Everybody else um, experienced a decline in the number of babies. So you see here that COVID-19 was an event that produced an acceleration of trends and an event that in other ways produced a disruption of trends. Okay. So um, one has to be very careful, I think. When you think about wars, it's the same thing. I mean, uh, some of the pre-existing trends get accelerated. Uh, so, for example, the production of drones, uh, the quest for completely autonomous drones. I mean, the war in Ukraine has essentially focused the attention on how can we use drones in different ways. That was already going on, right? But in other ways, of course, it has meant, you know, a lot of trouble because, uh, as you know, um, it has made it much, much harder for the energy transition to take place, right? Um, with all of the problems, uh, first in terms of uh, discontinuing imports from Russia of uh, natural gas, which is far better than coal, right, to burn, and so on and so forth. So I think one has to be, it depends on the case, right? And one has to be very analytical. The same event could have very different effects, and then there are different kinds of events that have different effects as well. So you have to be very analytical and very careful. Okay. One cannot generalize. That was the word I was looking for. Yeah, exactly. And it's different by country as well. And it's probably yeah. different within oh, a country. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. So I remember looking at the fertility rates by country. Um, I think it was World Bank or World Health Organization data. And it shows in, for the last hundred years, in countries like the UK or in Europe, it was three or four babies per woman. And now it's... 1.5 or something like oh, that. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And if you go to Africa, it will be four babies per women now, but it's driving down most likely to be at some it's point towards 1.5. So it depends on where you are in the world, it seems that, exactly. and where that country is economically, society, how society is, that's determining one of the key inputs to the thinking of your, yeah, of yeah. your work. Is that right? No, absolutely. But um, when you think about, for example, this issue of uh, the decline in the number of babies, um, by a wide margin, the single most important factor is women's education. Mm -hmm. If you have um, uh, educated women, they tend to stay in school, they, they go to college, maybe they go to graduate school, so they postpone having their first baby until they're 30 or 29. And uh, if that happens, then they're not going to have a lot of children, right? Uh, just for biological reasons, if not other reasons. And, uh, you know, I always like to say that... Um, we all are very fond of talking about the one-child policy in China that existed until seven years ago or so. But you see, in the United States, uh, in Europe, we also had a one-child policy. That one-child policy was called giving women the opportunity to go to university. Because let me just give you the data for the United States. Uh, the number of uh, babies uh, for uh, a college-educated woman in the United States over her lifetime, right, is exactly one baby. That's why I call it the one-child policy. However, for a woman in the United States who never finished high school, it's more like three and a half babies. Okay. So it perfectly correlates with the uh, level of education of women. And it's not because more educated women just don't like children. It's because they start having children later in life. That's what makes the difference, right? 
Sorry to interrupt. Please give me 30 seconds of your time. I want to say two things. First, you're halfway through this episode. If you're enjoying it, please follow this podcast on whatever platform you're using. It makes a huge difference. Second, lots of listeners of this podcast are research scientists. If that's you, then consider joining Frontiers Collective, the dynamic community that unites research scientists with a common purpose to achieve transformative research outcomes. In this private community, you'll have the opportunity to engage in thoughtful discussions, share ideas, and gain valuable insights from diverse perspectives. The Frontiers Collective serves as a platform for knowledge exchange where cutting-edge research across disciplines converge. To learn more, go to frontierscollective.com. Thank you. Back to the interview. So I want to switch gears a little bit to your most recent book, The Perennials, mm-hmm. which seemed to me a logical link to the trends that you were talking about as well, but it came about it from a very different perspective. Mm-hmm. So could you, for everybody, just to, just to connect, before we connect the two together, mm-hmm. could you explain what you mean by perennials uh, and the almost like anti-generational thinking, I think is, is probably how I'd describe it. Yeah. yeah. The book is, as you pointed out, is really a, a, an offshoot from 2030 uh, because I'm just digging deeper into one particular aspect, right? That, uh, again, has implications for it or has uh, aspects that have to do with demography, aspects that have to do with the economy and aspects that have to do with uh, technology. So a perennial is uh, someone who doesn't think and doesn't act her age or their age. Okay. So in other words, if we've been told for the last uh, 100 plus years that you have to learn when you're little uh, because then you're supposed to work and be productive. Um, well, uh, a perennial would be somebody who is age 40. That person is supposed to be working, but then decides to take two years off and to get another degree. That's a perennial. Okay. A perennial is also somebody who doesn't retire. A perennial is also somebody who, um, is willing to work with uh, people uh, or enjoys working with people from different generations. Now to your second question, which was the anti-generational thinking. Look, generations exist in our imagination. They do not really exist out there. Uh, why do I say this? Well, there's many reasons. First of all, the boundaries between two generations, two consecutive generations are completely arbitrary. So we define generations as people born before a certain year or after a certain year. Well, why that year, right? Uh, I can assure you that somebody born in one year uh, where we say that's the beginning of a generation and somebody born the year before, and that's a different generation, they have a lot in common, those two people. Right. And the difference in um, in the timing of birth may be only a few months. So it's completely arbitrary. But more importantly, generations conceal many differences. So to say that all millennials are the same doesn't, you know, doesn't work for me because there's so much heterogeneity. I can assure you that a millennial born in the UK is very different from a millennial born in Brazil. Right. Or within the United States, a millennial born in New York City is very different from a millennial born in Kansas. Okay. And uh, by the way, they don't eat all eat avocado on toast. So there's a lot of millennials who don't eat avocado on toast. So whenever you're making an argument about a group of people, okay, or different groups of people, and the differences within the group are bigger than the differences across groups, then the concept of that distinction of groups is completely useless. And this is what happens, that 
the variations are huge within, right? And, you know, the label millennial, and this is something that really bothers me, has frequently been applied to a college-educated person in the United States who has a professional career, right? And uh, who does relatively well in the labor market. But, you know, most millennials didn't graduate from college, okay? And, uh, in fact, uh, up to 15 or 20% of them didn't even graduate from high school. So what, what in the world are we talking about? How can one say, oh, that's a millennial, right? And this is the prototype of the uh, millennial. It doesn't make any sense. There are millennials with a college degree and there are millennials without a high school diploma. And I can assure you they're very different. And by the way, if they're women, the one without a college diploma, with uh, the one without a high school diploma has three kids, whereas the one with a college degree has only one. So if that's not enough, uh, what more evidence do people need, right? Absolutely. So if you have, it sounds like to me that a perennial is as much as an idea as it is a mindset for the people, yeah. how people categorize themselves. Yeah. So I could say I'm, I don't know what I would be, Gen X, I guess, according to the convention. Um, I could also be, a, which means that I'll be thinking in about 10 years, I should be retiring and going to the golf course every day and doing things that retired people do. Uh-huh. And so that's a mindset conditioned or, or formed by the generation. It is a mindset. I also refer to it in the book as a lifestyle. Mm-hmm. And, but let me, let me just take one step back. I mean, how did we get into this situation? We got into this situation 140 years ago as a result of two critical innovations. So the first innovation was schooling, universal schooling. Everybody had to go to school. But everybody had to go to school when they were young, beginning at age four or five, uh, and then continuing all the way through university, if that's what they wanted to do. Okay? So that's universal schooling. And then the second big invention was uh, state pensions, which essentially promised to some people that they could retire and not work and they would have a guaranteed income. Okay? So what are the problems with this? First of all, people don't like retirement. Um, so we're told, look, um, you have to learn everything that you can po- possibly need for the rest of your life when you're young because, hey, you're not going to have another chance of going back to school. All right? Then you have to work. And as you know, Ian, most people hate their jobs. Okay? This is just the reality. Uh, But nonetheless, we're told, hey, you may hate your job, but you have to work, right? Because otherwise, you know, um, uh, you're not a a full member of society. And not only that, think that um, what you need to do is work very hard, save money, And then there will be a big price at the end of all of this, which is called retirement. Okay? So people retire. Look, I don't know the data for other countries, but here in the United States, uh, 40% of the people who retire go back to work. As you know, in the U.S., there's no, um, you know, uh, limit on uh, how long you you can work, age limit for work, right? There's no discrimination by age. And of those Americans who retire early, and by the way, retiring early is supposed to be a sign of success is, oh my goodness, somebody has retired early. He must have been very successful, right? Um, well, 52%, more than half of people in the United States who retire early, they go back to work. Why do they do that? You mentioned golf a moment ago. That's not what most Americans do when they retire. The average American, what they do with the extra time is they watch about five more hours of television every day. And that's the worst thing you can do. It's boring, but more importantly, it's actually something that makes you stupid over time. 
because it's not interactive. So it really accelerates your cognitive decline and also your physical decline because you're a couch potato. You're sitting on the couch watching TV, right? Uh, people feel lonely when they are retired. So you have all of these things that don't work out for people when they retire. So retirement is a really bad idea. It would be much better, right, to persuade companies, to persuade the government that they should let people work, continue working for as long as they'd like. And by the way, that would also provide a solution to the pensions crisis. So if you've got a two different people with two different mindsets, a perennial mindset and a generational mindset, there is... Clearly, now you've, now you've explained it and I've thought about it for a bit longer. I can identify people that I know that have one mindset or the other, actually. And presumably, and I don't know if this is an argument in, the, in your thinking, that over time we will shift towards people behaving more like they have a perennial mindset than a generational mindset and therefore doing the things that you've explained, going back to education when they're later on in life, maybe having children later on in life if they can, you know, these different types of choices which are typically yep. associated with younger people. Yep. So bringing it, bringing it together with the, with the trends as well. So we've kind of got two things going on, two big things going on here. We've got these, these big trends that are reshaping the world that we live in. Mm-hmm. And I know there's cause and effect here as well. And then you've got a mindset or an approach that people are adopting, uh, which is linked to how they think about themselves and the things that they yeah. do. Yeah. So that clearly creates a different type of society. It does. And, yeah. And are you able to describe that society for, if you just think about a typical person living in a typical place in America or in Europe, wherever you think? Yeah. Take five years ago. And in 10 years' time. What are the kind of differences that you would that you'd see? Yeah, I have to do that, but I have to prepare the ground for that. Sure. So because there's something that we haven't talked about, which is competition, uh, which is technology also. Um, you see, if we continue to live our lives the way we have been living them, um, it's going to be a disaster. Because the new economy, with all of this technology, all of these things, changes the rules, right? And changes is one very important rule, which is that there's no way that anybody can learn everything that they will need for the rest of their lives when they're young, right? For two reasons. One is that we now live much longer than in the past, but more importantly, technological change makes whatever it is that we learn at school obsolete much faster. Think about AI, okay? So you put those two uh, things together. So if you engage in lateral thinking, then the way... Uh, things are going. And it's not because I say it or because people are imagining there's another way of living things. It's because of the dynamic of the market. It's because of technology. It's because of how the economy is changing. Is that the jobs of the future will be very different. And most people won't have just one career, meaning that they will go from one job to the next, but always within the same line of work. People will switch careers. Why? Well, because you start doing something and then, hey, here comes AI. And suddenly we need far fewer people with that kind of background or training or skills. Um, so what happens? Well, we need some mechanism to offer those who are displaced the opportunity to learn something new. So in the near future, what we're going to see is this proliferation of people who, you know, they decide what is it that they want to do, not for life, but rather for the next 10 years. 
they go out and that, you know, they learn what they need. They start working. And then maybe before there's even a crisis, right? Or there's a new technology that displaces them. They, they say, well, you know what? The time has arrived for me to switch. So they go back to school. They go back into learning mode and they switch careers, not just jobs. They switch careers. That's where we're going. We're also going, I think, to a world in which there will be very few retirees. Uh, because again, retirement is oversold. It's such a bad idea to retire, right? I know I understand, of course, there are certain types of workers, like construction workers, that cannot work forever. But, you know, they sure can, given their experience, they sure can learn something else and continue working. Not, not you know, um, nothing physical, but they could do other things, right? People are not stupid, right? I mean, people have skills. And people have, more importantly, the ability to learn. And this is what I think we have forgotten, Right? Uh, we have uh, forgotten that people have the ability to learn. And more importantly, that people can learn, they can unlearn, they can relearn multiple times throughout their lifetime, not just once. So this is really important. That's the, that's the future, I think. But it's not the future that I'm imagining. It's not the future that I, um, I think uh, for whatever obscure reason is going to happen. It is the future that this new economy that is technologically driven, right, demands, right? If we don't change, then of the people who don't change, they're going to be out of a, out of the market. They're going to be out of a job. And do you think that people, to what extent do you think people are doing this subconsciously versus in a planned out way? So some of these things that you're talking about will in many ways be invisible to the vast majority of people on a day-to-day, week-to-week, even potentially year-to-year basis until the point comes where they have to make some changes because something around them, the circumstances are such that a change needs to happen. So do you think people are, can't, yeah, back to the question, subconsciously dealing with this and affecting the change, or do you think they're planning for it? I think, uh, you know, forgive me for saying this, uh, it's very difficult to generalize. So whenever, you know, there's a shift out there, right? There is this big new thing that happens. It could be a war, it could be a pandemic, it could be a new technology. Um, you know, some people figure it out very quickly, right? Uh, so they figure out, oh, this is the way I should adjust. This is the way I can, uh, you know, make sense out of this. Uh, some people do it automatically, right? They have that ability, right? Uh, so that's the way I would put your subconscious, uh, you know, question here. Other people uh, don't realize it quickly enough and they start feeling negative consequences as a result. And then, of course, what they do is they seek help, right? Hopefully they seek help. Or they say, well, I need to go back and learn new things in order to cope with all of this. Um, and sooner or later, of course, that creates a bandwagon, right? That creates, you know, more people who then do the same. And we go through all of these cycles where people get really excited about something, right? And, uh, and then everybody does it and so on and so forth. So I think human behavior is, it's not that it's unpredictable. Don't get me wrong. I think it's just messy. <laughs> okay. The world is messy. And uh, we, we tend to think that the world is orderly and that, uh, you know, people, you know, um, have uh, their priorities very clear and they make decisions and all of that. That's not the way things work, right? But again, there are people who anticipate all of this, even subconsciously. There are people who they need to see first uh, the, uh, as we say in Spain, you know, I'm from Spain, as you know, uh, there are people who, until they see the bull, they don't start running, right? Uh, so that's when they start running, when they have the bull right behind them. Uh, but, you know, there's a lot of people who, you know, actually suspect, right? They have this, this sense 
that the bull is coming and they start running much earlier than the others. Okay. So let's now shift this to business. So it can be a general organization. They can be a national organization in the US or somewhere in Europe, or they can be a global company. Now, the CEO brings you in and they say, give me some advice. What should I be thinking about? I've read your books. I've seen your speeches. I need to make sure that my organization is prepared for this. Mm-hmm. What type of advice would you give? Well, I think uh, we can actually use the, um, the framework that I just uh, gave you in response to the previous question for understanding what is it that companies need to do, right? So, because I think something similar happens, although with a little bit more complexity and you don't have only one individual making decisions, you have uh, multiple individuals making decisions. So look, Ian, there's always going to be companies that for whatever reason, they're ahead of their time. They're just more sensitive. They have a better sense as to, they can smell what's going on, right? Or uh, companies whose leaders, they want to be pioneers. And they think, oh, yes, what this guy is saying that uh, we're moving into a perennial world, this makes a lot of sense. So let us uh, set up like a, a pilot program inside of our company and hire people who are in their 70s, okay? I'm just giving you an example. And uh, we obviously need those types of companies because they can have a very important effect in the sense that they can demonstrate to everybody else what is possible and what is not possible, right? You see what I'm saying? And then once you've seen that first wave of innovators that jump into the pool, right? Then the dynamic of competition essentially will drive the rest of the change, assuming that the change is for the better, right? So if this change towards a perennial mindset helps people, better adjust to technological change so that they have better job opportunities and so on and so forth, then the very dynamic of the market will indicate to other people that unless they do what those pioneers have done, they're going to be left behind. And the same holds for companies. Now, once companies realize that getting rid of workers above the age of 50 doesn't make sense because they have talents and they're very hardworking, uh, once they see that a few pioneering companies are doing that and that they're getting very good results, right? Either they change or they perish. Why do I say that? Well, because we have fewer young people being born. Uh, companies that uh, fail in the future to utilize the skills of people above, let's say, age 50 or age 60 or even age 70, necessarily they're going to fall behind because they're artificially shooting themselves in the foot, right? They're saying they're refusing to hire people above the age of 60. Well, look at this other company that is not doing that. They have access to that talent pool and they're doing better than you are. So the dynamic of the market will clean the rest of uh, the problem, right? We'll get rid of the rest of the problem. And how do you deal with the different national manifestations of these trends? So let's take two extremes. Let's use Japan that has had a very low birth rate for some time and a potentially declining population or reaching to the point of the declining population now and will continue for for many decades to come and then kenya which has the opposite effect so you've got one organ one country that's losing its population and is aging rapidly and the other one is growing its population and its economic prosperity and, and is very very young in its nature so you're a ceo of a global organization and you've got a desire to have a presence in japan and kenya how do you handle that or, or can't you? Well, look, I mean, obviously the comparison at one point in time is kind of unfair, right? Because Japan is, um, you know, whatever, 10 or 15 times richer mm-hmm. than Kenya. 
Uh, but if you, instead of looking at the comparison today, you think about where is Japan, where was Japan in the past, and where is Japan likely to be in the future, and you do the same thing for Kenya, then I think Japan, by the way, is not just uh, the low number of babies, it's that also they're completely opposed to immigration because immigration could be something that helps rebalance the problem. And so Japan has a very bleak feature, future because of that, because, um, you know, it's very difficult to make an economy work well over the very long run if you have a, a, an aging population, right? And of course, it's not so much that old is bad and young is good, is that the transition, right? The, the transition from point A to point B, right? That is Japan is going through now or China for that matter, is very difficult. It's extremely difficult because you have all of these things that uh, are pushed out of balance as a result of that transition. So for example, you have too many old people collecting a pension and too few young people working and paying taxes so that the pensions can be paid. So at some point, of course, when the old people die, let's say in 30 years from now, you no longer will have the problem, right? Because things will go back to equilibrium. You see what I'm saying? But for the next 20 or 30 years, life could be very tough in Japan or in China for young people. <laughs> Why? Because they're going to have to pay a lot of taxes. So my prediction is that many of them will decide to just migrate somewhere else. Why would they stay there? Right. But we'll see. We will see. So the, is it the logical conclusion that all countries are going to end up in the same place? It's just a question of time. Well, uh, there is convergence, uh, but uh, not always. But for example, in terms of demography, we are seeing a lot of convergence. So in other words, that um, everybody's living longer everywhere in the world and everybody's having fewer babies. As you pointed out earlier, the starting point is different. Some countries are starting at a point at which, you know, it's four babies per woman. Other countries at one baby per woman. But in both cases, the number of babies is dropping. And the same goes with uh, for life expectancy, right? So when it comes to demography, yes, there is convergence, but at different speeds and starting from different levels. And so this creates then, at least for the next 20 or 30 years, huge differences in the world. So in other words, the differences, the impact of those different uh, rates of change and the initial levels are so massive that then there's no convergence right away. There, there might be convergence in 40 years from now, but not right away. You see what I'm saying? I do. Doesn't it imply a power shift towards Africa? Oh, eventually? well, power shift in all directions. I mean, and, and economic shift. Yeah. Think about democracies. I mean, young people are going to be outnumbered by older people. So in elections, you know what's going to happen. I mean, the political candidate who has policies that favor the old people, that person is likely to win. Um, so you have that redistribution of power within countries, especially democracies. You also have, uh, as you suggested, a geopolitical redistribution of power uh, because some parts of the world are going to become more important than others from a population point of view. Absolutely. And often population is a driver of economy eventually, and that is a driver of the capability of a country and all of the things that they are able to do with that. Well, wealth. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, population is population. I mean, it's at the foundation of everything, right? Absolutely. So policymakers in Europe in particular, and I don't know if it's the same in the US, but they are tweaking the retirement age of people and often 
it comes up with great uproar and disgust from people that are one or two years away from retirement. Understandably so. They thought it was 65 and now it's 67 and it may be 70 at some point in the future. That seems like it's playing with the edges of the problem. Is that how you view it? Well, um, let me put it this way. So what I think people have not understood is that one thing is to have, um, like, let's say, round numbers, about four or five people working for every person in retirement, okay? Which was the situation in Europe or the United States 50 years ago. And quite another is to have two people working for every person in retirement, which is the situation now, uh, or one person working for every person in retirement, which will be the situation in Japan within like five or 10 years, okay? So it's just not sustainable. So when it's not sustainable, then you may say, well, you change this or you change that and you're just scratching the surface. That's true. But I think we're going to get so desperate that every little bit that we can do will help, right? Uh, at least uh, maybe not avert the crisis, but at least make the crisis less explosive, right? And uh, so it's absolutely clear to me that we will have to encourage people to work longer, right? So to retire later, right? We're going to have to reduce the pension benefits. Okay. Uh, we're also going to have to increase immigration in Europe and the United States because immigrants tend to be of working age and that helps rebalance the whole thing. Okay. And more importantly, we're going to have to ask people while they work to make more contributions to the pot. Right. Um, so we're going to have to do all of those things because Doing only one would be, as you said, scratching the surface. Doing two is still scratching the surface. Doing all of them, I think, is still scratching the surface when you only have two people working for every retiree, right? But at least you have a better chance of uh, at least buying some time, right? It seems to me that's what politicians are actually doing, is buying some time. Well, I think they're buying time, but they're also like um, not telling the truth, uh, the crude truth to people, right? And the answer to that in democracies is very simple. If you tell people that the pension system is unsustainable, right, during a, an election campaign, nobody above the age of 50 is going to vote for you. And if nobody above the age of 50 votes for you, there's no way you can win the election. So look, I mean, we have to understand about politicians in a democracy that their only goal is to get reelected, not only for themselves, but also for their party, right? Because it's not just the individual politician. There's a lot of people who depend on that politician. So once that politician is in office, that, that person hires people, that person does all sorts of things. So politicians are always looking for re-election. Right now, the center of gravity of elections is moving away from young people towards older people. So don't expect that a politician who is a true politician is going to like shoot himself or herself in the foot and say that the pension system is, in, is just not going to work. It's not going to happen. It's as simple as that. I mean, let's be realistic, right? So how does this resolve itself then, do you think? Well, as I said, I mean, we need to, um, we need to uh, do those four things that I mentioned earlier. So um, encourage people to uh, retire later and so on. We also need to increase immigration. Immigration is the only, like, immediate thing that we can do, right? So you open... Uh, a country with a rapidly aging population to more immigration. And that helps 
overcome the problem immediately, right? You don't have to wait 20 years. You see, if, 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 the, if some people say, oh, the solution is having more babies. Well, first of all, try to convince women to have more babies because what they want is to have a career, right? Um, but the problem is you have more babies, but you don't see the difference until those babies start to work. <laughs> and that could take 25 years or 30 years. So, so the only rapid solution with immediate effects is immigration. But the problem, of course, is that a lot of people feel apprehensive about it. And you have to come up with a very orderly system and so on and so forth. And the other, the other thing, uh, quite frankly, Ian, is adopt a perennial mindset, right? So um, think that you're a learner throughout your life. Think that, um, you know, you can move between working and learning back and forth, that you can switch careers, and that you don't have to retire if that's what you want to do, if you want to continue working. And that's going to help with everything. It's fascinating, isn't it? Oh, my goodness. I mean, look... Uh, I, for me, everything is like pretty clear, right? I mean, I make mistakes here and there in terms of the calculations and all of that. We all do. But the overall concept is so clear, right? And uh, the problem, once again, as I said, is that culturally we tend to change too slowly, okay? And the other problem, of course, that we have is politicians. <laughs> but that's a structural problem. I don't think we, we can blame individual politicians. The problem is a structural. Politicians in a democracy are there to get reelected, period. That's what they're there for. Either there or whoever they, when they retire, whoever they designate in their party, right? Or whoever gets elected in the party. But political parties exist in democracies to win elections. That's what they do, right? So uh, again, I, I don't want to blame individual politicians. What I want to, it's a structural problem that we have, right? What you um, talk about is very inspiring to lots of people. And some will be thinking to one group of people will be thinking, I'd like to do something like that. I'd like to follow in, I'd like to follow in the footsteps and learn more about that and be an advocate for some of the things that, yeah. that you're talking about. And some people will say, I see both huge uncertainty and huge opportunity. What should I, how should I plan my career in this scenario? Well, yeah, I mean, what you just said is, is a fundamental you know, characteristic of uh, the market economy, right? So big opportunities are associated with more volatility, with more risk, with more turmoil, okay? Uh, if nothing were changing in the world, believe me, the opportunities wouldn't be great, right? So it's kind of the uh, a different version of the risk return, um, you know, higher risk, higher return, a dictum for, for financial markets. Um, but look, I think um, right now, the way things are evolving, it seems to me that we no longer control uh, the pace of technological change. So te technology is changing because there are people who want to invent new technologies and use or find new uses for technology and because the market rewards it. And uh, obviously, we're not going to, you know, take away the market mechanism just because we don't like that, right? Because we don't like Google or we don't like uh, Meta, okay? We're not going to like say, oh, no longer we're going to have markets. That would be a, a big problem, right, if we did that. So I'm not going to say that we're trapped. But what I'm going to say is that um, we either adjust or we're lost, right? So it's not that we can just get off the train, right? We're all on the train and the train is moving really fast. And we don't know whether it's going to go this way or that way, right? with certainty, right? So sometimes, you know, 
they they switch the uh, the the thing in the in the tracks and you go in a different direction. And uh, our only possibility while we are on the train is to adjust. We are, as individuals, as communities, we have to adjust. There's no other solution. So it sounds like that actually the advice is, and we've talked about this already, adopt a perennial mindset, understand what's going on in the world, yeah, do your best your to try and plan for it, learn new skills, try exactly. different things. Think about yeah, and, think about your work, career as a series of projects, potentially. And work what other people or other organizations are doing, the pioneers, um, and see what they're doing, uh, see if uh, they're better off or not by changing. And then make your own decisions. Absolutely. Absolutely. We're coming to the end of what has been a really insightful, inspiring conversation. So thank you so much for taking the time to do it. Do you have any final thoughts for our listeners? Well, I think, uh, Ian, I think, uh, you know, um, one should always end uh, with, I think, two notes, right? One is, uh, look, if we have a problem, I think, in the world that is getting bigger right now, I think it's a problem that a lot of people are falling behind, right? We see that with children who don't do well at school. We see that with teenage mothers. We see that with workers who uh, get displaced from their jobs. Uh, we see this with, uh, you know, all very different kinds of people. And I think the reason for that is that the system that we have in place is too rigid and that is not compatible with the new economy that I was talking about. Okay. So that's the first thing that we shouldn't forget about those people who are in dire straits. So I didn't write my book to make successful people even more successful. I really wrote my book to um, help people of all ages make better decisions, but more importantly, also to uh, change the system so that we don't have 30 or 40% of the population who feels bad about their situation. Okay. That's the first thing. The second thing is perhaps, um, you know, again, um, reiterate what um, we concluded already, which is flexibility, right? How we need to be flexible, how we need to be open-minded, how we need to change our mindset, right? But be open-minded, right? Don't take anything for granted. Just uh, the world is changing. So throw old assumptions through the window and come up with your own new assumptions about how the world works. Those would be my two points. Thank you. Lots of people want to find out more about you. Um, where's the best place to find you uh, and find out about your work? Well, they can send me an email. Uh, I love email. And my email is all over the web. So if they just enter my name or they can go to LinkedIn, which I really like, and they can get connected to me. And that way we're in permanent uh, you know, communication. Uh, so that's the best way. And I promise that uh, I, would, I will answer every email I get. As you did with me. Thank you. Absolutely. So thank you so much for taking the time to speak to me today. Um, I found it incredibly inspiring. Uh, I love the work you've done. I've read two of your books. I have, I think, eight more to go. Um, so Professor Mara Guillen, thank you so much. Thank you for uh, the opportunity, Ian. Thank you so much for listening. To support this podcast, please follow us on whatever platform you're using. It makes a huge difference. Thank you again. Hope to see you next time.